This week on Writers Inc. And he literally had the bullet that he was just shot with. And I'm like, you are so full of it. There's no way. And then I look at him. Yeah, I shine my light and I'm like, well, there's a hole there. Yep, there's a hole there. I'm like, son of a biscuit. There's no way. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. There's the New York Times best-selling author. How's it going, man? <laughs> Number six this week. Um, so, so hanging, hanging in there. Um, they, right, right after we talked, I, I pulled up a list of books coming out. You know, like this, this the following week, just to figure out what my competition would be. And I saw Jim Butcher on there. So I'm like, well, there's no way I'm going to get number one with Jim Butcher out there. And then I saw Nicholas Sparks on there. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to get number one or number two with Nicholas Sparks and Jim Butcher on there. Um, but I, I'm very happy sitting there at, at number six or number ten or where, as Heck long yeah. as it stays up there. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it, it's been a very cool ride for sure. Yeah. Have, have there been any uh, other sort of behind the scenes communications or anything over the past week? Just uh, any, any info you got from the publisher or anything about about the launch? Not really. Um, I, I know that they're still running the ad campaigns. Um, I actually shut down a bunch of stuff on my end because I, I noticed that my Facebook ads were like, they went from like 20 cents a click to like a buck something. Ooh. And then I, I realized I was probably competing with myself because the publisher was out there, you know, marketing this book against, you know, basically my audience. So I, I shut down a lot of those. Um, but for the most part, no, um, I was really surprised by how quick my other publishers were to adapt all my covers. You know, like they, they like, they shot like every, every single one. I think I've seen a, a draft now with, with New York times bestseller nice. you know, author and stuff on there. So they're, they're very fast and that that's rolling out worldwide. Um, I'm still not sure how half these people even stay on top of this. They, they, they must have some kind of, you know, like keyword search or, or something going on to, to notify them when one of their authors hits that list. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a very cool experience for sure. I'm just, I'm trying to keep my head down. I finally got back into a normal rhythm, getting my words every day, um, fighting with my neighbor. <laughs> same, same Did you old, get same concrete old. poured? Oh yeah, we, we're back on again. Um, so we, you know, just to give everybody a quick update, we <laughs> it, we ended up working out an agreement with the town for the, the town that our island is on, um, and I, I signed that agreement with the the town selectmen, and we actually have town elders. It's it's one of those kind of places, uh, but everybody in town agreed what we were doing was you know going to better the situation. It it makes you know snow plowing a lot easier. Like it was it was good all around for everybody, other than the one neighbor who was fighting it, and she wrote like this three or four page letter explaining why this should never happen and why we had to. Do do this study and this environmental this and this that and like just anything she could think of to try and shut it down and they were reading the letter you know it was a, i was live at the meeting but it was also on zoom and like everybody in the room's kind of like shaking their head because they all know this this person not not this person in general but like every we all know that person you know like somebody like that um so i think they all kind of understood that it was just somebody crying wolf that really had no real argument and they you know the, the town ended up signing off on the agreement we got everything back underway and construction is moving forward um and i just found out she hired an attorney to try and fight us now on the porch that we want to build at our front door 
Um, so <laughs> it looks like this is going to be an ongoing thing. Um, so whatever. Um, I, th know, I think it's funny that her, her weapon of choice is, is the written word <laughs> against you. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I was talking to my attorney, it's like, I literally make a living outsmarting other people on paper. <laughs> you know, Like I, I have to do that. If I don't do it right, then, you know, readers think, you know, they, they, they come back at me. So like, I'm pretty good at figuring out, you know, okay, here's the scenario. Here's 10 possible outcomes for that scenario. Which one's least? likely you know like playing out all these different chess games in my head um so you know we, we'll have some fun with it um, <laughs> I, I i know i'm gonna win this little battle when it's all over but it you know it's just it's one more distraction every day yeah you know, like i she had a, a pickup truck out front that i didn't recognize and i think it was her attorney and they were like walking around in front of my house you know looking looking at everything and you know i, I saw that you know when i was trying to jump into writer mode and you know it took me another good 30 40 minutes to snap back into it again which yeah. is, is frustrating yeah i mean you have to put the the telescopic lens away. You have to put all your recording equipment away. It takes some time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so what else is going on? Well, we get uh, a couple fun things to talk about today. Things that have, we've been working on behind the scenes for a while. Um, so I think we'll, you know, we'll mention this. I, I, if you're a listener to the Career Author Podcast and you heard about this on Thursday, last Thursday's episode, but we're doing a little podcast merger. Uh, we are... Uh, bringing Zach Bohannon from the Career Author Podcast here uh, to do one episode a month. It's going to be topic-based, and we're going to keep our usual interview format for the other three episodes a month. And uh, And we really feel like this is going to create uh, a type of podcast that doesn't really exist in the, in the space. And, and this was really sort of your brainchild. You want to talk a little bit about um, how you came to this idea and, and why you shared it with us? Yeah, I mean, because frankly, I kept listening to you guys, you know, listening to your podcast and, and yelling at my phone, you know, <laughs> as, I, as I was listening, um, you know, mainly because I, I love the topics and everything that you guys talk about. I love the banter back and forth. But, you know, I just I felt that I could kind of weigh in from a, a slightly different angle than than the two of you could. Um, and I, I just figured that that would be interesting to our to our listeners, you know, because I'm kind of approaching this more from the traditional side, but with, you know, one foot in indie. Um, Zach is obviously, you know, already given up, you know, he dove off the, the board a long time ago into the indie world and he's doing well there um and you're coming at it from the, the same side so it just it, it seemed like a really good meld of of everybody's experience yeah yeah it is it's gonna be it's gonna be fun uh and zach and i talked about on the episode uh your very succinct comment uh was something that we were i don't i want to won't say ignoring but we weren't really addressing which is how many more times can we talk about not doing your own cover or the Amazon product <laughs> page? You know, like there's only at a hundred and we'll end at 150 episodes. That's, that's a lot of talk. Yeah. That's, that's a long run. I mean, as, as long as you guys don't make me grow a beard, I, I, don't, I don't think I could pull it off because Zach has a pretty tremendous beard and you look like you're working on one too. I, I don't think I could do it. Yeah. We don't have any facial hair requirements. You got, you got the long hair. <laughs> that's, so that'll, that, that's that'll good. Count. That's good. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff, you know, it still plays out, you know, like when, you know, as, as an indie author, you know, you obviously want a, a really solid cover and we can use that as a quick example. Um, and there's a million ways to get that done. You know, like I'm going back and forth with the guy who designed my last two right now and just trying to give him ideas of what I'm looking for. Um, I'm horrible at communicating that kind of stuff. So I'm, you know, sort of like just create a really cool cover and I'll let you know if I like it, you know, kind of guy, which probably sucks from his end because he puts two or three hours into some picture that he sends over to me and then I shoot it down in three seconds and kick it back. 
Um, but I'm also using um, 99 designs, which I think, you, I don't know if you mentioned it or you mentioned somebody similar to that. Yeah. Um, but you know, you put the idea out there and you get, you know, 50 to hundred different designers come back at you with, with different things. So, you know, like there, there's so many different ways to approach this. And if you're with a traditional publisher, you get zero say at all. You know, it's, it's your editor talking to the marketing people and the marketing people communicating what they want to the, the artist that's going to put it together. And, and this individual has probably never read the book and you're lucky if they even saw the blurb. Um, you know, so like there's so many different variables there. And then when you're published by foreign publishers, you know, it's different in every country, you know, they, they all weigh in with their, their own cover. Um, you know, so, you know, there's so many different things where we can attack a lot of the same topics that you guys have touched on, but you know, from a, from a different angle, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're really looking forward to it. We're all excited about it. We've had some conversations behind the scenes and we've got some, some good chemistry. It's not like we're strangers or anything. So, uh, hopefully, you know, it'll, it'll carve out a new little niche in the, in the publishing podcast space. Uh, you know, you have your topic based shows, your interview based shows, and we're going to bring elements of both of those together. So I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I am too. I can't wait. Yeah. The other thing we have uh, is you've been kicking my ass behind the scenes for <laughs> several months now. Uh, I kind of I, I kind of brought this idea to you. We've been wrestling with uh, some type of uh, free tool that we could give our listeners as an incentive to uh, to to be part of the show every week. And uh, I said, what if I write um, a short story and then you take me through your mentoring process? Um, with that short story. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, it's only, you know, 3,000 words. That won't take very long at all. And uh, it took me 11 drafts, but uh, I think we finally have an incredible story compared to where I started. And what we did was we documented that process from the very beginning all the way through to the end. And that includes all the uh, uh, drafts that I created. That includes our email conversations back and forth. And we've put all that together and we're calling it the Revision uh, Masterclass. And if you go to uh, writersincpodcast.com, right there on the right, you'll see it. You put in your email address and we'll send it to you and you can you can see how the sausage is made. Yeah, I think it's got everything other than your tears on the page. <laughs> but um, that, yeah, we definitely got everything else there. And, and honestly, where this this kind of came about, you know, I, I worked as a book, a book doctor and a ghostwriter for, for 20 some years, you know, behind the scenes, just helping people polish their novels and get them published. And I ended up with six different books that hit the New York Times bestseller list, all with other people's names on the title or on the cover, um, which is what you know, spurred me to finally, you know, kickstart my own career. Um, but once I started writing on my own, I really missed the, the feedback and, you know, just working with other people and helping them polish their books. So I started mentoring, you know, authors on the side, um, which I really enjoy. And I, I wish I could do more of it as, you know, it's one of those give and take as far as time goes. Um, but I, I think, you know, your, your short story came a long way, um, you know, and we've all been there, you know, like the last book that I worked on with Patterson, you know, we rewrote that ending three or four times, you know, like I, 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 I phoned it in, I think on the first ending, I mm. gave him what I thought was, you know, a good ending and it, and it wrapped everything up nice and neat. Um, but he called me up and he chewed me out and, you know, then I wrote him a much better ending and then he said, it's still not there. And we, you know, went back to the drawing board and we came up with one that's, you know, ridiculously good. I mean, not to toot my own horn, but, you know, it's like, but, but that none of that would have happened without somebody, you know, constantly kicking me in the butt. And I think we all need that. You need, you know, somebody who's going to be, you know, objective and isn't going to hold punches um, to, to review this kind of thing, because, you know, this is an extremely competitive environment. You know, when, when it comes to readers, you have, you have to be able to get those wow moments out of your readers. And if you do phone it in, uh, you know, it may feel right and you may get that last page done, um, but it, it can usually be better. Um, so this was a great way to kind of illustrate that entire process 
process from start to finish. We took a story that was good and we, we made it, you know, probably the, the best story that it could be. Um, and, and, and it's out there with, with all the comments. So we'll yeah, see how, and, what people think. And I, I'm, I'm grateful just to learn. I mean, I think the fact that we get to share that and other people can learn from it as a bonus. Uh, for me, you know, being able to being challenged in that way is, uh, you know, it, it's something you have to put your, you have to intentionally put yourself into that situation because we all want to protect our egos. We want to be comfortable. Uh, and so if you don't look for opportunities like that, it's hard to grow. And I didn't, it wasn't a bad story. Like I, I wrote what I thought was a good, a good story to begin with, but it didn't have that edge. It didn't, it didn't have the, what it takes. And, and I think that was very apparent to me as we started going through the process and I had to push myself. And, uh, you know, I, I, I said at one point I, I quote unquote, took a page out of your book. I wrote you four or five different endings and, and we kind of worked through those too. So I, I think it's, a uh, I think people are going to find it really, really helpful. Um, all the information will be in there. Um, so if you want to check it out, um, we, you know, it's certainly, you can certainly read drafts one through 11 and, and all the conversations in order. But even if you read the first draft and the final draft with the comments, I think you'll, you're going to learn a lot from that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I get asked quite a bit, like why I, I co-author books. And, and this is the reason, you know, because when you have two different people together, you know, it's chocolate and peanut butter. You know, you can you can come up with all the chocolate you want. But, you know, if somebody comes at you from left field with something totally different. Like that's the only that can only happen when you've got two different minds, I think, working on a particular project. It's you, you need that constant challenge out there. I agree. And um, pretty, pretty proud of the results. So hopefully uh, folks can, can go check it out. Yeah, so, it's a great story. Yeah, good. Cool. Uh, so who are we talking to today? It, it's law enforcement month here. Yes, on it is. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got, you know, it's funny because I was looking at his name. Like if, if I wrote an Irish cop character in one of my books and I, and I named that character Patrick O'Donnell, my agent, my editor, everybody would probably call me up and tell me that that is so stereotypical. You've got to change it. Nobody's going to buy it. It sounds fake. So today on the show, we've got former Irish cop, Patrick O'Donnell. <laughs> A great guy. I mean, he's, you know, he, 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 I'm sure he'll talk about his career, um, but you know, now he's, he's, he's a writer. He, he's actually got some books out there that basically help writers integrate, you know, law enforcement into their stories and, and try to get it right. Um, which is huge. Um, you know, very similar type of resources, Betsy Glick last week with the FBI, but he's on the, the local front. I think he was in the, was it Chicago PD? Uh, Milwaukee. The, Milwaukee. Yeah. He was in Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, just knowing that those resources are out there and he's got a really good book on, on the topic, um, which anybody, including any type of local law enforcement should probably pick up um, and just for the simple things. I mean, you know, like including like the hierarchy at, at the police station, you know, who reports to who, you know, you got to get those kind of things right, you know, and, and, and he's one of those guys that can help you make sure you do. Yeah, this guy's 25 year veteran. So uh, you're getting, you know, you're getting prime source material here if you're writing any type of contemporary story that would involve law enforcement in any way. Yeah, I can't wait to hear it. So here he is, um, Patrick O'Donnell. Patrick O'Donnell, you must be uh, Hungarian descent. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> you have one of the most Irish names I've ever heard. Well, both my parents were born in Ireland. <laughs> I am first generation. Uh, fantastic. And uh, you are in uh, Michigan. Is that right? No, I'm in Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm about 30 miles west of Milwaukee in uh, Wisconsin. Okay. And that's where uh, I live now. And what did your parents do for a living? <laughs> well, they were, when they came over to this country, my dad was 19 and my mom was like 14. 
even though they were born in the same little village of like maybe six or seven farms, they reconnected when they got you know older. Their families knew each other. It's a long story. I won't bore you with it. But um, <laughs> my dad wound up immigrating to Chicago. My um, grandpa, who was his future son-in-law, I mean father-in-law, worked in a building downtown Chicago as an elevator operator. So he would have to move people in and out of offices. And he was literally the guy, you know, what floor? Yeah, he was that guy. And it was a big union building. And you would have to join the union before you would get a job. So he had a choice, I think it was between the dairy union, plumber, and electrician. So he chose dairy because he was a farmer. And when he lived in Ireland, he worked in a slaughterhouse. So he was familiar with you know, livestock and all that kind of stuff. So he kind of went towards the agricultural side of things. So he, he did that forever. That's what he retired from. Huh. Yeah, Irish in Chicago. There's another shocker, huh? Yeah, yeah you know, <laughs> I'm going to throw you some big curves here, Mr. You know? <laughs> There's some great stories around uh, elevators. Uh, elevators were pretty controversial back when they uh, were first introduced. And, um, and people forget that there used to be elevator operators who had to either manually or with some kind of mechanics move the, move the car up and down. And if you were in a building after the elevator operator went home, you were stuck. <laughs> yeah. And my grandpa was like larger than life because he obviously got to know a lot of people and he was a very extroverted kind of guy. He was the guy that always had a joke. You know, he was kind of the life of the party guy. I remember when he passed 15 years old and his wake, I mean, it was packed with people that I'd never seen before. And I'm just like, holy cow. And I was like, <laughs> I guess grandpa did do okay for himself, you know. But it's funny, when he came to this country, he had to work. In Ireland, he was a butler for an English sergeant major in a manor that's now a hotel. It's a resort. Huh. And he, did, he, he got sick of doing that. And um, he moved to America, and he had to work for a year to save up enough money to send the rest of the family over to send his wife and his two kids over. And um, he stayed with an uncle that was a police captain in New Jersey. And he saved up enough money and he had a choice of two jobs. One was an elevator operator in downtown Chicago. And the other was a janitor on an Indian reservation in Arizona. Those were his two. Those wow. are the two choices. So that's how it all wound up being the way it is. Yeah. That's fascinating stuff. I love I love people's family histories. I just I'm so enthralled by this. Tell us um, <laughs> yeah. how you came to law enforcement. Um, I think I had an interest in it when I was young. Obviously, watching like Beretta, Starsky and Hutch, <laughs> <laughs> all those really cool shows on TV as a youngster. You know, I I loved Emergency. You know, Gage and Dodo. That's not police, but you know, it was kind of like you know, first responder kind of stuff, and. Uh, I liked all those types of shows. When I was a kid, I remember we, I was born on the South side of Chicago. We lived in some pretty crappy neighborhoods and we moved to Niles, which was a suburb on the Northwest side. And in the summertime, we'd go down and hang out with grandma and grandpa. And I remember my grandpa broke his leg shortly after he retired. So I was in the house by myself. I'm like 10 or 11 years old. My aunt called and she's, she's like hysterical. Are you okay? I'm like, why wouldn't I be okay? I'm just hanging out, you know? 
well, somebody just got killed out in front of the house. I'm like, no. So I peek through the blinds and I'm like, oh yeah, there's, there's a dead body. And they're like, okay, this is interesting. And then in Niles where I, where I lived as up until about high school, I was probably in like seventh or eighth grade. The police were doing a search warrant on our neighbor's house. So their SWAT team was there. I mean, we had guys in our backyard with shotguns, M16s and, you know, and, the houses in the Chicagoland area and the suburbs are like this close apart. They're super close. So I had a front row seat and I'm just like, I watch them breach the door. They're pulling people out. They're fighting, they're spitting. And I'm just like, this is the coolest thing ever. I want to be a cop. <laughs> so, <laughs> so fast forward. Yeah. You know, we wound up in rural Wisconsin. My parents have since moved back down to the Chicagoland area. And I went to college at UW Whitewater. And I made, I started out as a music major, actually. I had a lot of interests. I was going to be a band director. But then I started taking some criminology classes, and I always, had a, I always had an interest in that direction that I went. And then I did an internship when I was a junior in college at the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Department. And that was super eye-opening. Man, I had so much fun. <laughs> they don't let interns do any of that stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was a blast. I was on the... I spent my first month in the jail and they put me the first day they put me on the wing where all the crazies were the super <laughs> homicidal, crazy people, you know, and I'm just like, all right, sounds good. So yeah, that, that really whetted my appetite. And then uh, law enforcement isn't always such an easy job to get. You have to be pretty geographically flexible. Mm-hmm. And um, at first I just wanted to be in one spot. Then I had to kind of broaden my horizons but when I graduated from college, I had a degree in sociology and my minor was in criminal justice and I almost had enough for another minor in music, but I dismissed it by about that much. And, uh, I worked in restaurants. I worked on a 24 hour IHOP. I was a manager there, you know, just paying the bills. I sold cars for four years. I bartended. Those were really looking back. those jobs sucked you know horrible pay terrible hours terrible working conditions but you really learn how to deal with people and i've got a ton of stories from just from those days you know i think that's one thing with writers is if you haven't gone out and lived a little bit i don't know what you're gonna where you're gonna get your stories from or you know etc so yeah so then i finally got on the job when i was 30 and then i wound up did it for 25 years. Wow. Uh, I, I'm sure this is a, a question you get all the time, and i sorry, but I have to ask it. That's okay. You, you've been on the force a long time. What's some of the craziest stuff you've seen that you can talk about? Oh, boy. You know, there's. it all depends on what you do and where you are. I was lucky enough to land. I just retired two months ago. Oh, I'd congratulations. Retired. Thanks. February 21st was my last day. Wow. Officially. And I, I stopped working in January. I was off the books completely in February. So after 25 years, you have the option where I work, where you can retire and start drawing your pension. And I didn't hate it. I don't regret any of it. And I really enjoyed most of it. I mean, yeah, there were some bad times too. But for the most part, you know, I walked away and it was, all right, that was cool. I'm, I'm glad I did it. You know, but I... um. Yeah. So I just walked away from that and I was lucky enough to be in a big city 
and I was in patrol the entire time, which meant I was on the front line. We were the first responders. You know, I, I worked at night for 17 years and I worked all over the city. I just saw an article today that unfortunately our homicide rate is 97, no, 96% higher than it was at this time last year. Wow. So the violence just never stops. But when I was a brand new cop, it was the height of what we call the crack wars. It was the, you know, the nineties and people are, you know, uh, you dealers that would sell drywall or ivory soap as crack. Well, you can only do that so many times and somebody's going to put a bullet in your head. Sure. And then ta-da, here I am. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would get called to when I was a new cop. I mean, it was nothing to get called to one or two shootings sometimes at night. And it was just, you were surrounded by live gunfire you know, it was just, it was a crazy, crazy experience. I took two different dying declarations. And what that means is when somebody has been mortally wounded, you can take a dying declaration and that's good in court. Oh. So, but they have to have, be gravely, you know, injured and you have to let them know. It's like, you're going to die. So I remember I was fairly new and I'm with a partner that had a little more time on than I did. We, we hear this like barrage of gunfire, like maybe one or two blocks away. And we're like, probably should go to that. Yeah, probably should. So we go, there's a guy laying on the street. It was in October in Wisconsin. So it's cold. It wasn't yet. And it was raining. And this guy had so many holes in him. It was like Swiss cheese. And the paramedics are working on him. And the, uh, he's asking the, a female cop that I went through the Academy with and she, and he's like, am I going to make it? And she's like, yeah, hang in there, buckaroo. You know, you, you can do it. <laughs> and the, the paramedic is behind him. He's going, oh, <laughs> you know, gallows humor, like you would not. Yeah. Really. And <laughs> so I looked at him and I said, no, you ain't going to make it, dude. You're gone. You're going to your maker. So right away he looked at me and says, F you. I said, who killed you? I need to know F you. And I'm like, all right. I said, if that's the way you want to go out, and he said, Scooby-Doo, he rolls his eyes back in his head, and he was gone. <laughs> so that was at about 3 o'clock in the morning, and we looked for Scooby. Scooby-Doo was uh, one of the local drug dealers. Oh. That was a street name. Okay. So, of course, all the bad jokes about we're in the mystery machine all night looking for Scooby, you know, and his pals. Yeah, so... <sighs> I was lucky enough to be in these, I know it sounds weird, but as a new cop, you want lots of action and fun. And for us, it's shootings, car chases, foot chases, all that kind of stuff. So there was never a lack of that. Um, as far as like some of the craziest things I've ever seen. Oh God. <sighs> yeah. Just amazing what the human body can endure. You know, it, I've been to jumpers where somebody's jumped off a bridge and then they washed up on shore. I've been to where they jumped off a bridge and missed the water. I've been to car accidents where the person looks like he should, he should be okay, but he's dead. Then I've been to, I had a shooting one time, this stupid kid from the suburbs coming into the inner city to buy drugs. And he got shot like seven times. And he was released within two hours from the hospital. Oh, it hit nothing. I mean, it, you know, and of course, 
he wasn't a big tough guy anymore. He was balling like a little kid. You know, he was like 18, 19 years old, just being stupid. And I'm just like, do you realize how lucky you are? It, it, all these bullets literally didn't hit anything of consequence. And it was a smaller caliber. So, you know, maybe you should go to church on Sunday or buy a lottery ticket or do whatever you got to yeah. do. Then I had another one where I got sent to a shooting on late shift. It was about two or three o'clock in the morning. And I have a description of a victim and a suspect and I'm by myself and I'm like, Oh, there's, there's backup coming. And I'm like, Oh shoot. I was literally around the corner. I might as well go. So I go and there's a guy sitting on the stoop that matches the description. I, you know, I go up tactically. I got my gun out, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he just looks at me and he says, are you going to want this? He's got something in his hand. I'm like, are you okay? He says, yeah. And I'm like, um, I guess I'm confused. What's going on? He was shot right between the eyes, between the skin and the skull and popped out at the crown of his head. And he literally had the bullet that he was just shot with. And I'm like, you are so full of it. There's no way. <laughs> and then I look at him. Yeah, I shine my light and I'm like, well, there's a hole there. Yep, there's a hole there. And I'm like, son of a biscuit. There's no way. That's so, crazy. Oh, you just, you know, I, yeah, you, you tend to remember stuff like that, you know, but if I think about it, you know, I can think of a hundred more different stories. Wow. So is, uh, is copsandwriters.com sort of your next chapter? And maybe you could talk a little bit about what that is and, and what you do with it. Yeah. Um, Cops and writers, I'm trying to make it a brand. You know, I have the first book out and that's pretty much a basic, you know, from the Academy to the street is the subtitle. People are always asking, how do you become a cop? Um, we want, we want to write accurate, you know, stories in screenplays, etc. And I've consulted different authors and screenwriters. And I consulted with one filmmaker, an indie filmmaker, and he just got mad because I just, I, I, I told him very nicely what was wrong, but he didn't want to hear it. And yeah. I'm like, all right. But he had like, you know, like a police radio with no antenna on it. You know, his characters are literally pointing guns at each other. They're, and I'm just like, oh, my God, dude, you time out. Time out. You you need some help, man. You, and he, he wasn't having it. So whatever. So circling back to that, the book is more of a funnel. And I have a Facebook group with about two. I just hit over 2,000 members. It took me about a year to get that. But I started the face, the Facebook group before I wrote the book. So I was more or less doing the dig the well before you're thirsty. Right. You know, building a following, building some buzz and helping some people out. And most of the group is writers that they want to know, you know, it's like, well, would a detective really be doing this? You know, what does a cop, you know, in this situation, what does a cop do? DNA. How long does it take, you know, for this to, um, to get DNA back on something? And I'm also lucky enough to have a bunch of other cops that are in the group. So some of them, you know, they're um, fatal traffic investigators. I have some forensic people. I have uh, a guy who is in, uh, he's uh, running for coroner. So he's, he's a great death investigator. So he, you know, all the ins and outs of all that. So I'm very lucky to have a pretty well-balanced group. And they're very, my engagement's real good. I have about 2000 people and 
I always check the group insights, you know, to the left of the um, thing. And I'm usually pretty close to a thousand, eight, nine hundred, sometimes a thousand for, you know, people who are actively engaging in the group. Yeah, that's great. So I'm real happy about that. And I, um, you know, I have the website and I've got some police videos on there of just like me explaining what's in a squad car. You know, just some basic stuff that people are curious about. And I also have the same thing on my um, Facebook group, Cops and Writers. I did a, a Facebook Live with just what's on a police officer's belt. You know, when you're writing the story, it's good for you to know, you know, exactly what's what and who, what its purpose is and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I guess I'm building the brand. I'd like to do more advising with authors. I had a, um, a gal over in Paris reach out to me. She was working on her PhD and she was interested in police reports of all things. So I spoke with her for over an hour about police reports. You know, it, of course I didn't charge her anything like that for that, but it was, <laughs> yeah. So you never know who you're going to talk to and you know, who's going to be asking you the questions. So it's pretty neat. Then that's, Hopefully that's my next chapter and that's what I'm building up for. Yeah. It's, it, it sounds like a great transition. Did you, did you use the Facebook group to, to write the book? Like were you sourcing questions that you were being asked there or, or how did you decide what should go in the book? Um, not really. Uh, maybe some of the sources there. What I did was I interviewed detectives, police officers, sergeants, captains, just about any kind of rank you could think of, of people that I already knew. And that was all over the country. And some of that was through the Facebook group that I already had, but I also made friends. I go to conferences and every now and then you'll bump into somebody. Cops always sp spot other cops pretty easily. We stand out <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we, um, you make connections, you make friends and that's what I did. And, I have a pretty deep knowledge base because I worked in a big city and, you know, violent crime is so high. You're, you're constantly bombarded with a lot of different things. You know, it's like, okay, today's a bank robbery. Tomorrow's a shooting, you know, you know, then there's a sexual assault and then a child abuse. And that could all be within a couple of days where if you worked in a small town, that might be a year or it could be six months depending. So I, I've been constantly, inundated with this stuff and I retired as a sergeant so I was in charge of the officers at these scenes so I wound up being a supervisor so I had a good knowledge base and then like I said you make connections you make friends and some of it was through the Facebook group and that was part of the intent of um, doing that and people were asking you questions and it's like oh okay they really want to know you know how do you get an academy what goes on in the academy you know and then you just build from that. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, when you're when you're answering questions in the Facebook group, or, or your fellow officers are answering questions, are there certain things that seem to come up on an, uh, repeatedly that that maybe authors are getting wrong, or the, the the three biggest mistakes you see in like TVs or movies? Like, what are the things that the lay author should be really have their antenna up for? You know, that's a good question, and I get. Uh, asked that quite a bit um today in the facebook group there was a newer member talk asking about private investigators pis 
You know, it's like, what's the relationship between police officers and PIs? And I had already covered it, but as uh, I briefly uh, told him, and that's something that is totally wrong in TV and movies. You know, private investigators usually work on civil cases, not criminal cases, usually. You know, they get hired. My brother was a PI for years. And what he worked on was insurance fraud, people trying to fraud workman's comp, saying they got injured, you know, at the factory and their doctor says they can't lift more than five pounds. So he'd be and videotaping some guy chopping wood in his backyard or launching a boat at his cabin or, you know, those types of things. The cheating spouse, there's always that. Um, defense attorneys on the criminal side, defense attorneys will hire private investigators to do legwork. You know, they might re-interview a witness, you know, to the crime. And, you know, their job is to poke holes in the police story, you know, and do the best they can for their client. So a private investigator isn't really out to, you know, solve the crime per se. They're out there to, they're contracted by the attorney and they work for the attorney. So that's, you know, <laughs> again, my, my youth of, you know, I thought all PIs were like Jim Rockford, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he had a cool car, you know, and, you know, he made living in a trailer look cool. Yeah. He, he was, uh, but that was by the ocean. So I guess, you know, of course he didn't hold a candle to Magnum PI's car. No, no, <laughs> not even close, even close. <laughs> But yeah, I always thought it was funny that uh, James Rockford had his uh, pistol in his cookie jar. I always thought that was kind of cool. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, so the PI thing is that we try to debunk that. We have very, very little contact with them, the police. About the only time we have contact with them is they'll call in if they're doing surveillance on a house you know, like the make and model and license plate of their vehicle. So in case a neighbor calls and, hey, there's a, a suspicious car over here, you know, they've been out in front of this house for four hours. What are they up to? At least, you know, they'll give us a heads up, or at least de- reputable ones will do that. Um, another thing that is that is routine, routinely gone wrong is the role of different ranks. You know, there is a rank structure. Most police departments are paramilitary organizations. You start out as a police officer, and there's two different ways you can go to different branches. One is the patrol side, more or less answering calls for service. They're the ones that are chasing cars, breaking down doors. You know, they're the first ones on the scene. They're the first responders. They're usually answering calls for service from the dispatch. Sometimes they happen upon things. And there's also specialty units like the SWAT unit, motorcycles, boats, horses, canine if you that's an advantage of working in a large department you can branch out like that or a most or a good chunk of police officers stay in patrol they work out of a district station or a precinct depending on what part of the country you're in and then um all day they call me out you're a slave to the radio you're a slave to the dispatch you know whatever you're you're on their whim but every now and then they they'll kick off some self-generated activity like a traffic stop or a field interview if they see a crime being committed in progress, which is a very low number. It does happen, 
but the majority of a police officer's day is answering calls for service. Then you could go over to the investigative side and that's where you start as a police officer and you could promote to detective. And then um, as a detective, you can go from detective to perhaps a sergeant or a lieutenant within the detective bureau. And brand new detectives usually start out in property crimes. You know, they're the ones who investigate garage burglaries or a home burglary, that kind of thing. And then you can work your way up into more of a specialty thing, like say robbery, homicide, uh, sensitive crimes that, that encompasses sexual assault, child abuse, those types of uh, crimes. So there's two distinct sides to it. I stayed in patrol. Um, you start as a police officer. Then from there, you can promote to sergeant. Then from there, you can go. The sergeant's in charge is in charge of the troops in the field. He or she is the person that gets them going in the morning, gives them the information that they need. You know, at roll call, just like Hill Street Blues, you know, where they'd have the roll call in the morning. Same thing. And, uh, you know, what was the crime for the last 24 hours? Be on the lookout for this car. You know, they shot at the cops last night. You know, that kind of thing. Or some new rule from the chief, some policy, et cetera, et cetera. And then if there was any type of major whatever, I would have to show up. And I would supervise the scene and I'd supervise the cops. Um, The lieutenant is in charge of their shift. They're in charge of the cops and the sergeants. And so like say day shift, you know, I wound up on day shift my last seven years. I was on day shift. The rest I was on nights and they're in charge of that. Then there's a captain and the captain is in charge of the entire district of all the shifts of all the lieutenants and the sergeants and the cap and the cops. And there is a chain of command Whereas a police officer has a problem, they go to their sergeant, running to the captain, unless it's something egregious against a supervisor or something like that. And the same thing with detectives. There is, a, they have bosses. You know <laughs> what you see in TV or you know in movies is you have the lone wolf detective that's, oh, I don't care what my you know the lieutenant says, I'm going off and I'm doing this and I'm doing that, and I'm like, no, you'd get fired. <laughs> or, you know, and then. On the detective side of things, what's commonly misportrayed is interrogations, you know, or sometimes they're called interviews. You arrest somebody and a detective is doing the interrogation in this little room. You know, there's police shows where, you know, the detective has his gun. You never go in there armed and they're shoving it in the bad guy's mouth or they're beating him up. And that's a one-way ticket for the detective to go to prison because most of not all these interviews, interrogations are recorded, both audio and visual. So, you know, the DA who has to charge the case, it reviews that um, interrogation. And the defense attorney gets a copy of that as well. And then if it goes to trial, the jury is going to see that. The judge is going to see that. Then later on, it could be released to open records. Then the whole public is going to be able to see that. So it's nothing like that. A good interrogator gets a confession from, you know, the ultimate goal is to get a confession from the person. And a good interrogator, you know, you spend hours and hours crawling inside this person's head who just did this unspeakable whatever, become their best pal, and they're thanking you by the time everything's done and over with. 
me thank you i'm gonna go to prison for 10 years hey that's that's awesome but i've seen it and it's it's truly amazing there's people that do have that gift it's just it's incredible to watch but detectives have bosses most detectives are not in car chases they're not breaking down doors most of them never shoot anything they they rarely have their guns out depending now if you're like in a gang task force or vice those types of things you're running around with the cops and you're doing cop stuff if you're a detective but the majority of detectives are suit and tie detectives we you know they're wearing a suit and tie and they show up after the fact they don't show up while this shooting is going on. You know, not unusual for the detectives to show up to a homicide for half an hour to an hour. So, you know, on TV, it's like, poof, they all appear out of like nowhere. Like, no, not even close. Or, you know, you're hunting down this bad guy and the SWAT team is there and they're executing a search warrant. And you have two detectives wearing windbreakers that say whatever. And, you know, they're pushing the SWAT guys out of the way. No, 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 we're going to do this. And it's like they would be in their car a block away. They wouldn't even be in the building because, you know, the SWAT operators, TAC unit, whatever department, that's another thing. If you're going to be writing about a specific department, they have different terminologies for different units. So you can just use maybe an avatar city or but if you're going to do that i would for consistency's sake model it after a specific department that's always a good idea best practice yeah well that's some that's some great advice i mean no matter what you're writing i think having that sort of realism uh is extremely important um so as as we kind of wrap up our conversation tell me about um are you writing now? Is there is a, is there another book in the Cops and Writers series that uh, you're kind of stewing on? Yes, there is. Oh. Um, what happened was the first book was actually two books. It was about 120, 130,000 words, and it was just too much. So in, there's two distinct schools that people were looking for that I could tell. One was like the basics, what I talked about, you know, from the academy to the street, you know, what unit, you know, the motorcycle unit, what do they do? Canine, how do they work? You know, that type of thing. And then what a lot of people are interested in, in is crime scenes and investigations. So the second book is Cops and Writers, Crime Scenes and Investigations, where I go into who's in charge at a crime scene, who does what, what's the role. And that does differ by department. There's different cultures. So, you know, as far as like the forensic people, what do they do, you know, at a crime scene? In some departments, um, the forensic people, you might have, like where I worked, if you say you have a homicide, you get one technician that would come out. They take pictures, they collect blood, maybe some DNA, you know, whatever, and take hundreds and hundreds of pictures, maybe video as well. And you would have detectives that would document the scene, collect evidence. You know, there'd be a team of like maybe five or six detectives. Whereas, say, in other departments, even in big cities, you would have two or three forensic technicians and maybe only one or two detectives. And they kind of flip-flop, where the forensic people have a more active role in the crime scene of collecting the evidence and documenting where the evidence was and doing all the reports for all that while the detectives concentrated on witness interviews and, you know, trying to find the bad guy, that kind of thing. 
So that's that's book two. And nice. ho- hopefully, oh, yeah, I, I already wrote it. It went to the editor. She sent it back with all kinds of corrections. And I'm more or less rewriting it, much to my chagrin. <laughs> but I want it to be good and I want it to be right. So that's what's going on. Yeah. Any any um, police procedurals or murder mystery fiction stories in your future? You know, that's always in the back of my head. <laughs> I wrote one post-apocalyptic book. And I had a lot of fun doing that. And I was halfway through the sequel on that. And all the police stuff just started popping up. And it's like, you know, I should probably write what I know best. And, you know, and I saw, you know, retirement was looming on the horizon. So, again, you know, dig that well before you're thirsty. And I, I want to do the consulting thing. And, I, you know, I wanted to write the books. So I kind of sidewinded that way. So, yeah, I... It's not out of the question. I'll say that. All right. That's our favorite Irish cop, Patrick O'Donnell. <laughs> what a great guy. You know entirely too much about elevators. Yeah. I, you know, I had, I'll tell you why that came up. This is so bizarre. There's a, one of my favorite podcasts is called The Pessimist Archive. And what this guy does, he's the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, and he goes through history and he finds things that at the time were super controversial that are just everyday things now. And the elevator is one. Um, At the time, elevators were seen as like they were going to bring an end to civilization. They were dangerous. They were, uh, you needed operators. And I just happened to listen to that episode right before the interview. So I'm not an elevator uh, aficionado. (laughs) I just happened to listen to the right podcast episode at the right time. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's funny how those kind of things evolve, you know, like now we don't even think twice about it. And, you know, again, that, that's probably something you've got to think about in your your own stories, you know, depending on when you're you're actually going to set a story. Like I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what year the elevator operator went away. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, I'm, I'm sure they were still out there like in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, depending on the building, like they probably, you know, slowly phased out. Um, but, you know, it's one of those little details you got to get right. You know, if you're if you're telling a story that that's not based in modern times. Yeah. And I mean, that and, uh, you know, uh, that came through in, in the interviews in every aspect of local law enforcement. I mean, to to hear Patrick's story about, you know, getting to do things that an intern shouldn't do and, and being thrown into, you know, so, some of the most disadvantaged neighborhoods during the, the 90s crack epidemic. And and all of that is become his experience. And I think he's so uh, well suited to now help authors uh, get that stuff right. Yeah, one of the things that you know you, you could really hear it in talking to him is is that gallows humor that he that he mentioned. Uh, every cop that I've ever met has that. Like, I, I think it's a defense mechanism or a coping mechanism, whatever you want to call it. But it, in order to do this job long term or do that job long term, they they seem to develop this particular sense of humor that uh, t- you know only people in law enforcement tend to get, and they treat you know a lot of inside jokes. Um, but I, I think that's what helps keep them sane um, because of the you know the what they're looking at every day, you know, what they're exposed to. I mean, if, if you're not able to define some kind of humor in it or some type of defense mechanism, I, I think it, it takes over uh, and, and, and those types of people end up flunking out. No doubt. And, and I, I think both law enforcement and first responders have to be some of the most challenging professions in the modern world. Like I, I can't imagine even doing that job. I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for people who, uh, voluntarily put themselves in a situation where they're dealing in the worst of situations with the worst of people almost all the time. 
Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, especially in today's world, I, I know when I was a kid, I wanted to be a cop. Like I, I, all my friends wanted to be cops or firefighters. It was always one or the other. I think it's still cool to want to be a firefighter, but not so cool to want to be a cop right now. Yeah. Not right um, now. In, in, the, in the current environment. Um, but you know, the, those people, they're still out there. You know, the fact that they're able to do that job in, in today's environment, you know, just more power to them. Um, you know, any profession is going to have some bad apples. And unfortunately right now, those, those bad apples are really shining. Um, but the, the rest of them out there, they just, they really deserve credit for, for what they're doing and, you know, putting themselves out there, putting their lives on the line literally every day, especially in some of the places that he was talking about, you know, like in, in you know, Milwaukee and Chicago or, you know, the bigger city, Chicago, um, you know, New York, um, any, any of those types of places, it, it's just, it's so ridiculously dangerous, you know, every night, you know, like they may not come home. Um, and, you know, it doesn't pay well, you know, it's just, it's one of those things you have to love it. Yeah, and again, timing-wise, this this was recorded uh, many months ago, prior prior to a lot of uh, the most recent events. And uh, I also wanted to mention, we'll have a link in the show notes. I I'm pretty sure his next book, Patrick's next book, is is going to be out by the time this episode airs. Uh, so we'll have we'll have links to that. But he he's building a great set of resources uh, for writers. He genuinely wants to help writers. He's now officially retired, uh, so he, he can kind of focus on this. And I think, like we talked about last week with Betsy, uh, these resources are out there. And, and hopefully, if you're writing th- these kinds of stories, you can take advantage of them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so who do we have next week? Next week, uh, we have one of your local uh, friends, Tom Holbrook. Oh, River Run Books. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he owns the local bookstore here in Portsmouth, um, New Hampshire. Um, so he's, he, he actually just sent me an email. I got to run down there and, and sign some more copies. But um, yeah, just the fact that he's able to keep a bookstore up and running in this environment, yeah, that, that says a lot about him. Um, I believe he's got a little publishing industry on the side or a little pub, you know, company that he's working on. Um, and he's been around the block. He's been doing this for, for quite some time. So it'll be an interesting conversation. Yeah. And I happen to know he's also uh, writing fiction which is great. Yeah. It gives them another perspective too, as far as uh, the industry goes. So uh, Tom's another great guy. Uh, we, we both know him personally and uh, really looking forward to having that chat with him. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.